Welcome. Here we are. This is the tipping point. Uh, we're recording on November 16th in Kingston, New York. On this snowy Friday, the topic is Democrats. Yeah. The state of the so-called opposition party. I mean, for a democracy to work, we need at least two parties. The Republican Party, as we talked about in the last episode, has totally gone off the rails and are, have kissed democratic norms goodbye. They just want to win, and that's it, and get more power. You know, largely doing that. My biggest concern for democracy right now is the Democratic Party is pretty sold out to corporations, and there is an attempt to wrestle wrestle it back. And this is our first podcast since the election. Joining me, we have John House Wilson. How's it going? Hey, folks. How's it going? Uh, yeah, I'm back. It's true. And uh, yeah, 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 we could do like that. I'm an actor, educator, actress, whatever. Do you um, want me to do that? Not as fine. No, you don't have to do that. Right. Um, uh, but with us, we have two special guests. Um, we have our friend uh, Chriso, um, who I'm going to say is a comedian, performer, and rancateur. How about that? In that order. <laughs> In that order. Um, Chriso, wait. What's your last name, Chriso? Babcock. Chriso Babcock. Yeah, friend of mine. We do some creative projects together. What's a rancateur? No, seriously. Yeah, what's a rancateur? <laughs> Seriously, I have no idea what a raconteur is, but it sounds good, and I'll take it. <laughs> it's like a you fun rabble-rouser thing. It's I'm a rabble-rouser. Sure. Okay. I might it's have like to look it up. It's like a French rabble-rouser. <laughs> yeah, French rabble-rouser. French exactly. rabble-rouser. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and also with us is uh, my close friend, Hallie Kananak, who is an educator and, I'm going to say, activist as well. Indeed. Happy to be here. Yeah. Before we dive into the election results, we want to just dip into just you know some some good news i think it's something we wanted to start to do with this podcast being put on by the people's empowerment project and talk a little bit about how the project is developing first we got pretty involved with this campaign uh to take the state senate um as you all know the democrats are or the excuse me as you all probably know the republicans controlled the state senate and they were blocking campaign finance reform and so we have a, a hope in the Democratic Party as they take over the state government. We have a, tr- a trifecta now in New York. Yeah, we've gone full blue. So it's now we have the, the Senate, the House, and the governorship, if you consider Andrew Cuomo to be a Democrat, which, yeah. you know, some people do. So we've gone to, like, <laughs> snowball chance in hell, you know, that we can get full public financing passed in New York State. Um, but the People's Empowerment Project made signs uh, for Jen Metzger, who I'm glad we got involved in that race because she won 51 to 49 percent of the vote, and we just helped put signs. We covered, made hundreds of signs uh, that we wheat pasted onto corrugated plastic, covering um, the Ulster County part of the district. And they were cool. They were not traditional campaign signs. When I saw them, I was like, "Oh, something other than just a name and a color," because that's all it ever is—is is name and color. Yeah, they'll just and, say "Vote for Joe." Yeah, exactly. And we wanted signs that were going to stand out, be a little different. We we went with the the I Heart New York theme, and made um, Jen Jen Heart New York, um, Jen Heart Fair Elections, Public Financing Campaigns, and then we had. Um, an anti-rabbit song. And we have nothing against rabbits. It just happens to be that the candidate's name was Rabbit. She was running as a Republican to keep the Republicans in control so they can continue to sinisterly – is that a word? Sinisterly? Sinisterly? Sinisterly yeah, right. block we'll go for it. Uh, campaign finance reform. We saw that, that Metzger had a good chance of winning, and so we just threw all of our eggs in that basket and super glad we did. And Hallie, you saw some of the signs? You said you... Yeah, I did. I really liked how you were able to tell a bit of the story. Like like you said, it wasn't just the names. There was information about issues and where the candidates stood on those issues. Yeah, I would I would add, too, that when you first presented the idea to us, or when, when I first heard you talking about the idea, you were talking about the, the anti-signs mm-hmm. more explicitly. That was the concept that I first heard you talk about. And I remember there was some... Um, some brouhaha that yeah. came yeah, up around the efficacy of what what is more effective, a, a negative sign or a pro sign, and research has been done into it. And I think it was interesting that based on that conversation, or maybe partly based on that conversation, that you um, decided to do a mix. Yeah, I'm glad we went with the mix. And I also, I think, just taking a step back, just want to invite people to like chime in because I really, I'm a true believer in collective IQ. You know, we're smarter when we all kind of put our ideas out on the table. And so the, the, the idea started as one thing and then evolved. 
I appreciate everyone's input. I think moving forward as a tactic, I want to I want to take it to the nth degree. Like this is what the meme signs. I think we should do meme signs. Yeah. I think 2020 full on memes on poster board on the side of the road. I think it would blow people's minds because people are so used to seeing them electronically, and then you take it out of context, and everyone would just be like a stop take. Like what what's going on? Yeah, image text like and that's it, big. And then you have our signs that actually say something and have some sort of meaning on them versus like vote for Joe yard signs. Which, Nobody's convinced Joe by Pesci, that. right? Yeah. yeah, Joe Pesci is running. Joe Pesci for president. Ooh, 2020 Joe Pesci. You there know? we go. There we good. go. There's a coalition. Um, but but you think I'm funny? You think I'm funny? Huh? You think you got some kind of clown? Trump? Huh? That's a terrible Pesci. I don't know what that is. He, he, yeah, we need the two of them with um, Tomei. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, yeah, exactly. as VP. Or no, how about her as <laughs> yeah. whatever. Um, in a, wait, in the same. But they uh, would kill Trump. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in, in the same news, yeah, so My just on the local Vinny. thing. So Metzger wins, and Metzger won big because Ulster County got out and voted. Um, and it was a lot of it was, like, actually firing up the base. Same we're in Ulster with, County, by the way. Yeah, and we're in Ulster County. Ulster County is a little bit more blue in a purple district. And Ulster County also went big for Antonio Delgado. So it was, he, he won Ulster County by 15,000 votes um, and then lost – Lost a bunch of other counties, Sullivan County, Otsego County, Squahari County, Greene County, almost the rest of the district except for east of the Hudson. So that was an example of firing up the base, getting people out to vote, which is great. And, Chris, you voted. I did. Yeah. Amazing, amazing, amazing. You voted in a midterm, too. I voted in a midterm. This was actually the first midterm election that I've ever voted in. Yeah. Um, as far as I know. I mean, unless somebody else was using my name, you know, who knows? <laughs> well, according to Trump, there's like huge amounts of voter fraud. So maybe. Yeah, it's quite um, possible. And you are, you're like a millennial thing, right? Yeah, I'm a, a, I'm a young millennial thing, <laughs> as, they, as they call us. You're a solid millennial. I don't think you're young. I think, how old are you? I'm probably on the edge of millennial, but I do think that I would be classed as a millennial. I, was I think born it's 81 in, to 2001. Yeah, I was born in 88. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So you're yeah. solidly in the middle of the bell curve of the millennial but it's also really about mindset. Like your age does not actually make you class sure. as you are. Sure. So what would you say about your mindset? I would say I have the mindset of like a 60-year-old burned out hippie. <laughs> <laughs> like very ultra progressive. Yeah. Um, you are wearing a bandana. Anar- anarchistic at different points in my life. Uh, definitely there's some pretty – Democratic, you know, big boys that I didn't vote for because I'm like, ah, fuck you, man. <laughs> well, let's we'll, we're gonna get back into that. We'll we'll get into millennials in particular, but it's important to say, yeah, you did vote, you did vote locally, and there were great results because we got a lot of local Democratic progressive voices to go out to the polls. I mean, that's Ulster County. That's the votes that were there. Um, in other news, by the way, Matt, I saw that you were in the chronogram. Well, not well, you and the organization. That's some good news. Yeah, no, it's uh, been a long time coming. We've kind of getting the behind the scenes things together, but just have recently started to reach out to media and tell the story of Democracy Coffee, and so it's an exciting new chapter for us. It, it was good, and and we got the word out there to you know I think there's going to be a lot of people reading that. We'll see if, if coffee sales go up, and uh, it's the it's the November issue, so it made it made it out there for some viewers before the election. So that was cool too. Yeah, the coffee makes a great gift for the holidays, oh, and also yeah, the yeah. chronogram makes a great free wrapping paper for the holidays. Mm. <laughs> so make sure the article's <laughs> facing out. It's also really cold outside, so you drink coffee. There you go. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to get into it, right? The the big picture here, there was just an election, um, not just at a local level, but across the country. People went out and voted. They stood in line, sometimes for a very long time, and uh, there was a blue wave. It happened, right? The actual blue wave. Which sounds like a toilet bowl cleaner. We've said this before. It's not a great brand, but there was a blue wave, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, and I think the the degree to the waviness of the wave, the you know, <laughs> the waviness of the wave, the waving, the, the degree to which it was a wave got a little bit muddled by the way the results came in. The earliest returns were the worst for Democrats, like Florida and Kentucky, I believe. The Democrats far underperformed expectations yeah were you guys watching i I think there was a collective gasp yeah from from people of like oh my gosh this is going to be 2016 all over again for a second but then the later returns came in and the blue wave did bear out you know i think and it was tricky because everyone was sort of expecting a blue wave and so it was more like is this 
bigger than what we expected, but it was still a blue wave. And it wasn't really bigger than what we expected. It was sort of dead on. To well, and the coverage was a little painful, too, because I was watching, like, CNN with a bunch of people. You know, they got the big board and everything, and they kept on just focusing on Beto and on Abrams um, and on Florida, Rick Scott and everything, who, you know, Voldemort. And, you know, we shouldn't say the name, sorry. But, um, and so it was killing you me. You should not be named. It was killing me because there was, like, five women who just, like, won in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and they just, like, showed them real quick, boom, 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 and then they went back to the races where Democrats were trailing. Well, those are the most high-profile races. Yeah, right. they were, like, the big ones that everybody was like, oh, my God, wouldn't it be amazing, like, a black woman running for governor in Georgia? But, yeah. The, the chances were never that great. I mean, Florida, the chances were good, but in Georgia and in Texas. <gasps> Wait, Hallie, you're from Florida? <gasps> yeah. Florida native. There's some really outstanding news about Florida coming yeah, yeah. out of this election. The best news out of Florida is that they passed a law changing voting rights for ex-prisoners. Yeah, felons. Felons, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's huge. That's like, what, a million people? or I don't know the exact numbers, but it's, it's enough to make a difference in the outcomes of Florida elections. In super close elections. They're and now, we know yeah. in our national elections, Florida makes a big difference. So it's an interesting take on how one little change... I consider it a miracle that it managed to pass because the powers that be in Florida who are in the pockets of the powers that be in our country are definitely not in favor of a largely African-American section of the population now getting voting rights that they otherwise would not have for the rest of their life. People have been scorned also by like the criminal justice system who like they know like I mean a lot of these people are felons for minor drug charges. And being like, yeah, are they going to break for people like, I mean, like former Attorney General Jeff Sessions who's like, yeah, we're going to start cracking down on marijuana again when everyone in the nation's going in separate directions. Which also, that's other good news, right? There was a recreational or decriminalization medical got passed in a couple of states. That's good. So there's some big ballot stuff. Although there was a fracking thing that failed in California because oil money, the oil and gas companies threw millions and millions of dollars and flipped it. From this is like from our last, you know, our last podcast. Mm -hmm. They were like overwhelmingly people were like, yeah, we want fracking protections for water. We want setbacks. And it went down because they threw tens of millions of dollars at it. So it, it's mixed on on some of that stuff. It was mixed. But the felon thing is amazing. I mean, that's great. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to think about how many environmental ballot initiatives mm -hmm. were, that were very popular early on ended up failing. Yeah. Because of outside money coming in and influencing the election. Yeah, maybe that's why the uh, the restoring the voting rights worked, because maybe there wasn't really big pile of money against it, maybe. Yeah. You know, it's like, because there wasn't a direct profit for someone. And the majority of people believe that people should have voting rights, right? I mean, so, but as a Florida person, was it hurting a little bit to watch this elect, to see Rick Scott, who denies climate change is happening in Florida, go from freaking governor to sent? I mean, that hurt me. Pretty stupid. Big bummer. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> big bummer. Oh god, he's but that's that's not decided. I mean, I that's don't true. think there's They're not counting. a great chance, but there's still uh, they just triggered a, a hand recount. Um, Dude, it's coming down to Broward County again. It's like 0.2% of the vote is what's dividing it at this moment. Ugh. All right. Yeah. All right. That's Gill Gillum was like one of the the low points for me. That was the big the big uh, sad time expectation bummer. He the polls were all showing him winning by like five points. Yeah, and uh, but that was a bummer. But I, I, you know, and and Beto, of course, Beto O'Rourke, the rising star in the Democratic Party. Uh, I, I have to like as much as I would, and we all would have liked to see him win. I think we have to view that as a victory. I mean, what he was able to accomplish as far as like voter turnout in Texas, breaking records. Texas is a red state, and he came within a couple points of of taking down an uber powerful Ted Cruz. Um, and that's just so that's and that's the turnout story, right? Part of yeah. the the blue wave story is the turnout story that Chris O voted in the midterm. It was all me. It the was all blue wave. <laughs> it was typical millennial. Yeah, typical. It's all about me. We tend to believe that it's all no, about I think us. That's the Did you take a picture of your ballot and like you doing duck lips with a peace sign for Instagram? I tweeted a photo <laughs> of the actual ballot that you're not supposed to show to anyone. I tweeted. <laughs> I bumbled it. Yeah. I, I, it's actually my OK Cupid profile as well now. <laughs> of course. I'm Tinder. Tinder. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're yeah. a millennial. Tinder. Uh, well, of course. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so this brings us into millennials to a certain extent because people came out to vote, right? It was the highest. Hallie, what were you saying? It was the highest in. It was the highest percentage of turnout for yeah. a midterm for an election midterm election since 1914. Boom! Wow. Pre women's right to vote. 
Yes. Pre-19th Amendment. Wow. All right. Which hey. means it would have been higher in 1914 because <laughs> exactly. it was only half of the population. <laughs> 49% of the Oh, so and really, but they would have won, oh, and but less. they lost exactly. because they didn't let women. Vote. And hey, well, hey, let's say this is what Trump does. He brought people out, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Trump brought out more people to vote against him. Well, a lot of people be, voted for him still. I mean, would it be possible to do this entire podcast without saying that name? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, can, we can he, edit that he out. shouldn't be named. Yeah, okay. Not um, even we should that bleep. much clout. From now on, Trump gets bleeped. So, but let's so let's Perez. and real real quick. So on on the voter thing. So 2018. So this is the millennial versus baby boom Gen X thing. This is a thing we're gonna go into. All generation stuff is kind of like made up to a certain extent. Obviously, to believe that baby boomers are a little bit maybe more conservative about certain things is not like outrageous, or that you know, especially white male baby boomers are a little bit have a certain perception of race or of women. Um, well, if baby boomers were not allowed to vote in the 2016 election, Bernie Sanders would be our president. Right now. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but just breaking down the numbers. So in the 2016 election where Trump won, baby boomers are 31%. Millennials were matched at 31% of the voter eligible population, right? A lot of the millennials did not come out because it was Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Neither party, neither person really excited young people. Bernie had excited a lot of people. He wasn't there. 2018, now we see baby boomers are 30%. Millennials are 32%. Right? Gen X is in there. They're smaller, though. It's a smaller generation, 25%. But that's interesting. You're seeing millennials overtaking. Yes. 100% of the millennial gener- generation will be eligible to vote in 2020. Yeah. So 20, and they're huge. Yes. 2020 is going to be 34% of the population are going to be people right now who are like under 35. So that's going to be – this is part of what's happening now. And they turned out for the election. Are you talking about people who are eligible to vote or people who are registered to vote? This is eligible population, not registered. Registered numbers are not great for millennials. But the eligible population is – it will be 34% of the population eligible will be millennials in 2020 for the presidential election. Chriso? So you mentioned Gen X in there, and I think you said they were at 25%. Yeah. So – and Gen X, remind me, this is the, the generation right before the millennials. Is that yes. how they define it's a, that? It's basically like John and Mai's age. Yeah. Well, I'm a zillennial officially. Excuse me. I don't buy zillennials. Well, I no. I think it's really. I think okay. it's really true. So yeah, the zillennials are the people who were born and grew up with technology, just kind of hitting at the right perfect time. So when I was seven, there was a Nintendo, and then when perfect. I was twelve, there was AOL and perfect. Instant Messenger. Right. So it's just yeah. And they were getting the the year I went to New Pulse to SUNY New Pulse, my alma mater. Facebook. Um, no, they they were moving the card catalog out of the library, like physically uh, throwing it out into the garbage because they're like, oh yeah, this is going to be computers now. So, um, yeah, does anyone even know what that was for at this point? <laughs> exactly. What what were those cards for? The Dewey man. Decimal System. Those little pencils. Like, what are you doing with pencils? Anyways, um, so yeah, so obviously some of this is not real, but yeah, Gen Xers, Gen Xers are a smaller generation partially because between like sixty eight and like seventy eight. It was not like the country was a lot of people did not perceive the country to be a stable place financially or socially. Um, a lot of there was more divorce. Right. There was um, a lot more contraception available. So there was this contraction. But millennials, there is this there is a, a surge of the total population. There's a spike that's coming of millennials. It's a larger group of kid, people and right. they're coming online as potential. voters. Everyone thinks the boomer generation is the biggest because that's where its name came from. It was a baby boom. But actually, they're no longer as of like yesterday. They're yeah. no longer the they're biggest just generation. They're older and, and wealthier, they and they vote more, and they talk more. And, and so in, in an episode about the Democratic Party, one question needs to be asked. Where is the Democratic Party going? Who are they trying to appeal to? And thus far, we've seen an establishment that's been loath to invest resources in communicating to the millennial generation. And it makes sense. You know, they want the reliable voters who are going to do what they've done for the last 20 years. They're going to go after those high proclivity voters and basically pretend that millennials don't exist. And well, they they might. We don't know. Right. Well, that's what they've been doing. Yeah. I think that's a huge mistake, and I think that they really, like, when we're looking at the 2020 presidential primary, I want to see a candidate that can appeal to millennials. And it doesn't have to be a millennial or somebody – I don't think millennials can run for president. Before we get there, hold on, because, oh, my God, the election just over. I know. As soon as the results were in, I was going home at 1130 on election night. Somebody's like, who do you think is going to run for president? I'm like, oh, God, this begins now. Before (laughs) we get there, first, let's talk about Democrats in Congress, right? Sure. And also, maybe let's look back real quick. So 
for turning out young people, for turning out people who don't like maybe the Democrat. Were you guys Bernie supporters at all? Were you were you a Bernie supporter at all? Super Bernie supporter. Hall- yeah, Hallie was out there. I know. I remember you were out there knocking on doors, right? Yeah, but also just um, as far as speaking to my heart, which I think is really what caused that was a real wave, mm-hmm. is that <clears throat> it was direct to like, yes, you are speaking my truth. This is what I believe in about what our government should be doing for us and for the world. And it was like, this yeah. is what I believe in. I'm voting for this. Yeah. And so so this is you saying the progressive message, especially economic progressivism, right? Um, is something that was speaking to you very deeply and you got motivated, right? And so this is, this is part of the question of, did you feel the same way, Krista? Where did, did Bernie, did you feel like that was speaking to you as somebody who is now, a, you're now a registered Democrat, right? Yeah, I would say Bernie was the only candidate who really seemed to be saying anything real that I've seen maybe in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, actually talking about corruption, actually talking about the um, the amount of money that is currently fueling the whole you know election system yeah and talking about inequality just all together yeah talking about talking about real real issues that nobody else was talking about and you know so I mean I didn't particularly for for whatever reason get in on that big Bernie wave in the same in the same way it's it's been more recently just in the last six months that I that I um, registered as a democrat Mm. but i do think it's interesting like for me i think that what's happening right now with trump has been a huge motivating force for me to to register as a democrat and i'm fairly politically radical i mean i would say the the reason that i haven't voted in the past like even um when obama first ran i didn't vote for obama because i didn't believe in a lot of what he was saying because he was still pro-nuclear he was pro-war he wanted to start you know so there was there was issues there for me, serious issues, and I didn't vote for either of them. Hmm. And then, you know, but now in retrospect to look at where we are now, it's like and now I'm now I'm voting for whoever I can that's even slightly better than than the opposition because <laughs> because what it feels like to me now is that every little bit is keeping us from cascading into a dictatorship basically. A plutocracy, corrupt plutocracy of of corporate interests making up ninety nine percent of both parties. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so this brings us to like the split in the House of what are Democrats? What are they doing there? Right, they're an opposition party. We want them to be in opposition to Trump, but can they do it? And what what who is actually in the House or in the Senate and, who and can that, actually do that? And that's sort of the sequitur to the to the episode's tipping point, right? I mean, if if we have a Republican Party that's wholesale, fully taken over by corporate interests, and then you have a Democratic Party, which is largely taken over by corporate interests. So the health of our democracy relies on there being, at the very least, a two-party system, right? If you don't have a two-party system, it's not a democracy. So th- so I think the tipping point for our democracy as it stands, if they're not an opposition party, no democracy. If they are, then we do have one. And so to what extent we has have, the we dem- have a shot of maintaining some shred of democracy? Yeah, How so about that? <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I mean, I wouldn't classify what we have now as a democracy, but do I think we have a chance to get one by a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party? Yes, I think I think that's what's in order. And well. Yeah. And so and so the number that stands out to me that I, I just found today was so that now there are 90 progressive members um, of the caucus in the Congress. Right. So there are 90 progressives, um, including Ocasio-Cortez um, and other people out there who are really progressives. But there are also 90 members of the New Democrat Coalition, which is a it's a corporate pro-growth, you know, liberal group within the Democratic caucus. And so that's kind of. That that shows that yeah those those two caucuses coalitions are equally matched. There's other ones out there, of course. There's blue dogs who are even more conservative on some issues. Mm-hmm. There is the congressional black caucus. So there's it, there's a mix of different representations in there, and that's kind of one of the things coming out of this is people saying, hey, there are more women, there are more people of color. There's a wider diversity of opinions about certain economic issues within the Democratic Party. Is that a weakness? And can there actually be an oppositional party if it's too diverse? And if you have like pro corporate Democrats. And Ocasio-Cortez attempting to say, like, yeah, we're going to come up with some kind of agreement on what our financial 
position is. Like, can we actually be an anti-corporate party? Yeah, what do you think, Matthew? Is there hope for the Congress to be, to be actually oppositional or progressive? I think there's a fighting chance. At, at no point can we sit back and trust that our government or that our representatives are going to, like, fight for us. Like, we need to actively agitate and make it so it's a liability for them to not support a progressive radical agenda. Yeah, and so one of the questions would be, Who's leading the Democrats? And right now, it's there's a question if Nancy Pelosi will be the leader of the Democratic Party in the Congress. She's done it before, the first female majority leader, and maybe now the second, right? Um, and there's a big question. Antonio Delgado in our local race, our, local, our, our new congressman, he said he would not endorse Nancy Pelosi, right? And there's polling out there that shows that the majority of Democrats say they prefer someone else other than Nancy Pelosi. And now, now do you guys think, is that because she's perceived as a corporate candidate a sellout something or is it just because trump's been slandering her in the past i know he said good things this week it's weird we could talk about that but you know the the, the republican party's been saying pelosi's evil for like a decade right. so it's like it, so you know i, I so have mixed feelings about that like i think like nancy pelosi to her credit has been on the good side of most issues uh she voted against the iraq war which was huge uh she was in the minority of democrats who vo voted against the iraq war when it wasn't cool to be against the Iraq war. Like, Un unlike, it, unlike Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Nelson, who's running in Florida right now, um, a whole bunch of so Democratic— So that took some guts. <laughs> That's like, yeah, that takes some, took some serious guts and said something to me about her. But regardless of the merits of Nancy Pelosi, I think there's a tactical decision that needs to be made that at a certain point, enough resources have been invested in in slandering her brand that w at what point do you you know cut cut off that dead wood and say you know even if she, even if it's not true at a certain point it could be a liability to the democratic brand to their ability to appeal to young voters so I, I, I do wonder whether Chris, she's the best. What do you think? You're a newly registered Democrat, just voted in the midterms. Is seeing Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, like Nancy Pelosi in particular, do you have a do you get excited? About, do you have an opinion about her? Do you have a feeling? Um, you know, I don't actually know that much about Nancy Pelosi. I have caught wind, obviously, recently there's been just a lot of Nancy Pelosi hatred, I feel like, out there in the, in the, the waves. Yeah. Um, do you feel she represents you? I mean... I don't really feel like any of these people represent me, um, but I think, yeah, I would say, I would say, you know, it is tragic that women, I'm thinking of Hillary Clinton especially and Nancy Pelosi, who are in politics long enough and they're Democrats, they tend to get, you know, destroyed by lightning the, rods. What's that? They're lightning, lightning rods. You know? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're easy targets. Um, and it's easy for them to be slandered. Hallie, know? it seems like you might have something to say about that. You're, there's a deep breath there. What do you think? Do you think do you think Hillary Clinton, and Nancy Pelosi get attacked more? I think that one of I think about the worst possible way to be a woman in America in 2018. I think super poor black in a domestic violence situation is probably at the bottom. Mm. But I would rate being an entrenched political figure. In the category, in the list of worst places, worst roles for a woman yeah. in the, the U.S. today. The, the amount of venom. I work with you know young people who come from conservative families, and the amount of venom they have just in particular for – especially for women in the Democratic Party, for Pelosi and Clinton. And now Ocasio-Cortez, somebody who's showing me memes attacking her already about how she can't afford rent, but her clothes cost so much money, and she's like a spoiled millennial – this, these are these are conservative memes. I had kids who are you know conservative come to me and show me stuff attacking her already, not you know other progressive candidates, but her. But it's partially because she's getting coverage because she's brilliant and articulate, and she's youngest youngest you know congresswoman ever or youngest congressperson ever, youngest congresswoman. Ever. Yeah, but it's also because she I, probably she is a woman. Um, but yeah, so Pelosi. Yeah, I mean. Well, and one of the things here is like people are like critical of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi because yeah, we should be. Chuck Schumer takes more money from Wall Street than almost anybody else out there. He voted for the Iraq War resolution. I mean, this is the head of the Senate for Democrats. Like, that's not very exciting. He also is monotone. He looks like he is, you know, a physics professor who's half asleep or something, you know. So there's some issues there. Um, but it's also a matter of the reason Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are there is because they have to go out and get the votes. And Nancy Pelosi might be good at that. It might not be that she's ideologically pure or that she's a new, fresh face. 
but she might be able to get votes. You were saying that you you were like, what was it? You're like Nancy Pelosi is. I was saying Nancy Pelosi is um, very appealing to really any millennial, being that she's so young and fertile and full bodied. <laughs> Oh um, boy! Oh no, boy! Uh, Did you? <laughs> right. We're gonna cut that, right? No. We're gonna we're gonna cut that. But so you're saying, yeah, she's young and hip, of course, very young and hip. Chuck Schumer also young and hip. He skateboards. He plays bass. Um, okay, yeah. So well, maybe we should talk a little bit about. I know you know Nancy Pelosi, like that's on everyone's mind. But probably the the sexier issue is who's going to be the Democratic presidential. I'd rather oh, go God. deeper than that. For okay, a let's, let's circle do it. Back. What do you got? Okay, so we're talking about. Like, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are getting a ton of media because they're the leaders. They're the known quantities. But if we're talking about working towards the tipping point, I mean, you're saying, Matt, that you're talking about the two-party system and how to make that work as the pathway to true democracy. Unfortunately. Yeah, which is total bullshit. Because really, there are a lot of voices, a lot of, like, hearts and minds that are well outside of that two-party system. But for now, for a variety of... I don't know. I don't know how real it is to me, but the prevailing mindset is that the only way for the progressive voices to be represented is to find a way, find leverage within the Democratic Party, and to take back the power from the corporate yeah. entity. You, you're agreeing with that? I don't think it's the only pathway, okay. but it's definitely. You know, that's the mindset of our culture. It's right certainly now. The, the most low-hanging fruit. Like, if, if if progressive voices, people who want to try to limit corruption, are going to gain power, I don't think it's going to be through the Green Party. I think it's going to be through one of the two main parties. Yeah. I don't like that that's true. Believe me. Like, I think that's an awful system, but it happens to be the system we're in. Yeah. So I, given that, we're talking about taking back the party. So, John, earlier, you mentioned that 90 of the 435 uh representatives in the house are progressive yeah candidates progressive representatives sure so we're really thinking about who of those 90 people are going to become the leaders like the known quantities like Schumer and Pelosi who is really going to rise to the top we certainly hope they all represent our interests as they campaign to but who of them is really going to lead the charge yeah. in taking over the Democratic Party? Although before we get there, I think it is important to notice, we, we didn't mention this, and this is incredibly important, is that the blue wave included a wave for women and a wave for people of color, right? So there are two now, two Native Americans in the House of Representatives. There have never been any Native Americans, right? There are 15 Asian Americans, 39 Hispanic. Um, so there is a huge – so the Democratic Party, one of the reasons why we'd say, okay, they're the, they're the ticket. They're the ticket because they're letting – all of these voices who've never been listened to in, in in ways that the Green Party sometimes failed to do. I mean, who was who was Howie Hawkins running for governor? Right again. I mean, Leduc. Right. I I know this because I was a Green Party person. I was really pushing. I was really like, yeah, um, for a while. Um, they're okay on some of those things, but yeah, a lot of their candidates were people. You know, were white people. And Clearly, maybe... the Green Party is not the solution. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, they're their great ideologically. Are so low. Yeah. yeah so low. Well, and and then that for me is just we need a different structure. We need a parliamentary system. We need partial work. Yes, that yeah, would yeah, be amazing. Yeah. But we're not there. So you know. The Democratic Party offers an opportunity if you're going to be a person of color attempting to represent communities of color, which is that's something it, it is important to consider. Like we, we're saying progressivism. We want a progressive candidate for 2020 because we want somebody who's going to support clean elections. We want somebody who's going to speak to 99 percent of the people. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it does matter. Uh, people are looking at, you know, gender and and race as factors. And that is going to be a factor in, in that is like what's the uh, what's the optics? So. Yeah, I mean, well, Krista, does that matter to you if it, if the candidate's a, a person of color or if they're if they're female? Does that does that help? I mean, um, yeah, I think it makes a difference. I think you know, it's at some level, it is identity politics, and you know what they stand for and or purport to stand for should be more important um, in some sense than than their skin color or their gender or their religion. There was speaking of religion, I think there was also two Muslim. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Women or yeah. women? Yeah, both. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's pretty um, that's pretty amazing too as a as a shift to have two Muslim women in the government. I mean, that's talk about a, we were talking about lightning rod earlier of like what it means to be a, a woman in politics. Imagine being 
a Muslim woman in politics in the U.S. That and, and knowing that 30% of the people in your district are probably hardcore Trumpers because that's just I mean, what it breaks probably down Probably the reality <laughs> is it probably means that you're getting death threats every day yeah. is what it means. It's, it's, it's 20 of the 59 new members of the House are minorities, quote-unquote, or are non-white. But, I mean, I guess to answer your question, I would say I do, I do think it's important strategically, and I do think it's important symbolically, um, but – you know, at the end of the day, I think even more important would be candidates that that are really pushing, you know, progressive causes. You know, you can be a, you can be a black woman candidate who still believes in all sorts of horrible shit and is going to fight to make it happen. Um, so, you know, we have to we have to look deeper. I think it's good to I think it's I think it would be strategic for the Democrats to try to find people who can do both, you know, who are going to symbolically visually represent the diversity that we want to see in the party or in our system but also are going to actually take a strong stance on things because it's not enough to vote for someone just out of identity politics right and i and i do think that there is a certain trap in identity politics um that you know it, it, it has a tendency because the, the democrats have a big coalition of, of very differing demographics and and religious and ethnic groups so it's i think the degree to which the identity politics takes the like the 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 top notch thing the front the front burner that people are talking about it you do run the risk of alienation and and interestingly like i think some of the data coming out of of the 2016 election showed that hillary clinton ended up spending a lot of time in the super PAC supporting her and energy um do playing the 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 identity politics the the pro woman um narrative and that it largely backfired that it actually didn't turn out women at greater rates as as was as was the plan and actually worked to turn men out against the campaign at higher rates so it actually was a net negative for the campaign the whole bernie bro narrative that whole like Trying to make this this the election about sex, you know, it, it actually hurts. So, I I I think that the best narrative moving forward for the Democratic Party is economic populism. I think that's something that can support the, this broader message. But I think that delivered by people of color by women, uh, I think that's the winning ticket. <laughs> Just we we do want to have a disclaimer here that the the people commenting on this right now are all. White men, um, while Hallie does some research, and it is easy for us to say that maybe we should focus on policy and not on race or sex. Sure. I've been I've been called out for it on Facebook, where I was like, you know, I supported Bernie Sanders. It was actually somebody who campaigned for Bernie Sanders and was saying how they will no longer vote vote for any you know white cis men. And me being like, but yeah, but you campaign for Bernie. And I was like, just because he's like a progressive and he's eighty and from like a different era in some ways doesn't mean so. But that is that is contentious, right? Of course, and we do have to check that. Say, okay, yeah, we are white men saying like, hey, let's stop playing the identity politics. But you're right in the sense that Hillary did not. White female voters went for Trump. I'm just saying tactically. Like, yeah. I'm not making a, a a qualitative judgment on identity politics, and it's not my position too. Okay. I'm just simply saying like, for what's best on winning. Yes. It, there's good arguments against that. Diversity in our representative government is definitely a good sign for Absolutely. what the people sitting in this room and a lot of our listeners want for the future. Yes, most definitely. And again, it's why we it's why partially we're hanging our hats on the Democratic Party of saying, like, maybe this is going to be a party that represents the people. It's because there are. So there's 90 progressives, right? And then there's 90 of these corporate, you know, caucus people. But there are a larger number of people of color, larger number of women, larger uh, representing Muslims, representing a wider diversity of people. Okay, so let's talk about 2020 and let's talk about, yeah, like who who's right. Part of this discussion is did the election actually say, yes, progressivism is going to win? Or did it say actually a bunch of moderates won too? Because moderates did win, right? Some of the more conservative people didn't, didn't win, right? You were mentioning a few. Uh, McCaskill, right? Donnelly, McCaskill all tacked the right. They lost. So, I mean, there's a fair amount of evidence that suggests that the vanilla, milk toast Democratic model doesn't doesn't win. And there, you know, and I think some of our the more progressive Democrats 
were running in states that, that, that really the cards were sort of stacked against them. Like, to say that Beto or Stacey Abrams, them not winning is suggestive that that, that more broad coalition of non-voters that they're going after with economic populism is a failed policy because those were those were districts that were really difficult to win. And so we shouldn't look at the win-loss, but rather the margins and and where you would expect a Democrat to, to land in those states. And so I think looking at that lens, if you look at how far Beto taking a, a progressive message to Texas, how, how much better he did compared to previous candidates, that's what I think is relevant. Same thing with Stacey Abrams. We're seeing progressives running in red states doing somersaults over what the milk toast democrats did before them yeah and so okay so that that's that's saying okay progressives are actually proving that a message can appeal to a lot of people including independents including people who haven't voted for a while um but so maybe part of what this discussion also is is we have a new congressman right we have a new congressman and as a little bit of like a lab experiment he is a person who potentially could be a very progressive congressman or he could be a pretty moderate congressman. He is very much a little bit of a blank slate and maybe also a little bit in the fold of, you know, a previous Democratic. When you thinking. say moderate, what do you mean? Because I think there's some important yeah, okay, linguistically so, speaking yeah, and distinctions. So the, okay, one of the biggest issues is probably going to be make or break, right, for Democrats would be are they a Medicare for all, universal health care party, or are they a uh, – the uh, you know – Affordable Health Care Act with maybe some state choices, maybe with some subsidies to assist states that are not you know, providing it. Are they actually going to be a universal health care party? That's one of the biggest. And Antonio Delgado, our congressman, is not a – originally was not a Medicare for all person. When he realized that the issue was health care for this election, that that's really what people were caring about and what was a big issue for them and what was like – you know, because it wasn't necessarily unemployment and it wasn't – so it, you know, the question is – and this is part of the action component, right? We want to talk about what we can do. As part of what we can do is make sure that, like, someone like Delgado, who I think is wants to be progressive in some ways, who maybe will not be given an opportunity to be fully progressive in some ways, how can we also push him to be? Because that's it, right? We've got to push this party to actually represent people. I want to actually – yeah, I think that's a good question. And, and I, But I want to circle, circle us back a little bit to that question of, like, what does it mean to be a moderate? Does – does being a moderate mean that you support killing millions of civilians in wars for oil? Does being a moderate mean that you don't believe that universal health care should be guaranteed to all people? Does being a moderate mean that you don't want a living wage guaranteed to, to people who are working the, the hours to, 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 well, to subsist? Let's ask. So what, 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 yeah. What, okay. Well, let's ask. Is, does that, because to me, that doesn't sound moderate. Okay. Well, Chris O'Halley, what, what do you guys think about the word moderate? Like, do you think moderate Democrats – like, you know, a moderate. Is there a better what? name, maybe? Um, hmm, that's a tricky one. Is it somebody, um, like, as Matt's saying, who's willing to kill babies, but only in, like, a really, like, progressively, like, humanistic way? Or I'm just kidding. But no, really, I mean, like, maybe conducting wars with more compassion. Like, is that... Or just you know, not getting involved in them? Like, <laughs> Yeah, like, do you think a moderate... Would you vote for a moderate Democrat? We, we've reached an interesting point where, for me, I am voting for moderate Democrats because... Mm -hmm. It seems like strategically, or lesser of two evils, or however you want to describe it, but breaking strategic power uh, of the Republican Party, or whether it's um, lesser of two evils, however you justify it. For me right now, I, don't, I, I think that there isn't another option than voting for moderate Democrats. And I think that you can vote for moderate Democrats and also... Um, you know, voting really does not take that much time. You can also <laughs> still do other more progressive activist work and in the still, primaries. and in anything and still vote. You know, you could be campaigning for radical socialist reforms and you could still vote for a moderate Democrat because it really only takes 30 minutes. You right. drive to your polling station, you vote for a moderate Democrat. It doesn't define you. Not because – and you, for me at least, I don't vote for a moderate Democrat because I think that they're actually going to be anywhere near to what I think they should or could be. I vote for them because they seem to be still significantly better than the alternative, right. which right now is seeming extremely powerful. So any any way to break that power monopoly. So that seems like it's a marble in the jar for like – yeah, okay, yeah, moderates, we can, yeah, we could run a moderate in 2020, maybe. Because in right now we want to appeal to, you know. Yeah. 
Hallie, do you think if there was like a, there was a more middle of the road Democrat who was trying to appeal to a bunch of Trumpers, or maybe or or a little bit? No, you're making like a stink face. Yeah, right. You don't want that. No, that's not what I want. Well, and that's and that's why Bernie because and Bernie is that example, right? If Bernie is somebody who appealed to the Trump. If you're trying to peel away anybody out of like a, who's an independent who might vote for Trump, Bernie might have been that solution because he was saying, yeah. You know, our factories are gone. 1% of all of America. I'm doing my Bernie impression. Um, right? So, so Bernie you're killed saying, it with independence. He killed it. Yeah, he killed it. So, so you don't want to see that. You don't want to see a moderate Democrat run in 2020. I'm certain that multiple moderate Democrats will run in yeah, 2020. Yeah. But that, you know, that's not what I will not be voting for them. Yes. And okay. I think a lot of other people, like you just said, independents have just been marginalized because they don't feel like the Democratic or Republican Party are actually representing them. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call them Trump voters. I would call them voters who are not super wealthy or powerful, and they have a lot of interests that are relevant to their own life. And a lot of people in this country have that in common. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I think that also speaks to the broader sort of tactical divide within the Democratic Party. There's one camp that is going after these quote unquote swing voters, which are like, you know, some small fraction of the population, like, you know, less than one percent of the population of people who are like on the fence: should I vote Republican this time or Democrat? Like those that those people almost just don't exist. There's like, and yet, but but then there's this fifty percent who just don't vote. Who just don't vote. And so the other the other tactical side is saying, let's not invest in this these swing voters. Who, yeah, sure they have a high proclivity to vote. Let's talk to the fifty percent of the population that doesn't vote, and that's yes. what Bernie was starting to do. And that's the that's the populism, progressivism, populism, right? Your chart yeah. saying that there's left and right, and you got to come to the middle to get those votes, but saying no, we're going to go with the ninety nine percent. Yeah, that that language actually works. One of the critical ways that we can win the Democratic Party back is change where it's getting its money from. But notably, with Bill Clinton, he took corporate money and was on a policy front, once elected, was unwilling to to buck corporate power. And if we're going to take back the Democratic Party, I think we need to follow the mold of Bernie Sanders, where he got small donations, and that's what that's what funded him, but in significant amounts, enough to be competitive with small donations. So when he, if he got elected or somebody in that mold got elected, they'd be free to support an economic populist message that would enable the party to resonate more thoroughly with with the public if people really believed that their small participation made even an iota of difference i am certain we would see more people involved but there's just this prevailing sense that nothing i do is going to make a difference and a lot of that is due to the fact that the corporate powers the big big money that's what's determining what's happening and not the people yeah, I think you know the half of the population that isn't voting, hmm. as as frustrating as it is that, that that they're not voting, it's not irrational. The system really is so corrupt that it's debatable how much of an impact we have. You know, I think Chris brought up a good point that voting doesn't take that much time; it's not that big of a deal. But people's skepticism that their vote matters is not without reason. Something that Lawrence Lessig, the Harvard professor and activist, brought up uh, in his TED talk about the invisible primary. A lot of times, the, the candidates that we get to choose from have already been sifted through by corporate interests. They've just like, yeah, we get to vote, we get to choose, but they get to pick yeah. the pool of candidates we get to choose it's like from. Like when you tell a three-year-old, like you can have eggs and toast or a bowl of cereal. Yeah. We're totally making the choices. That's right. an illusion of choice in order to keep these three-year-olds feeling like they have power and influence over their life. Right. But if the adults know what they're doing, they're really making the decisions. And that's how we're being treated. Yeah. Because we are. We're distracted by making money and staying alive and the drama of media and the news and the government. And, and so I think what we're, what we're seeing in places where public financing has passed in like Maine and also to where it's passed in New York City – when people give 2 or $3 to a campaign, they're that much more likely to be engaged and, and believe in the system. And, and I think if we can give people a sense that they have power, it's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then they do have more power. And part of that is giving people sustainable ways to fundraise because we need to 
change the way the Democratic Party is funded if we're going to wrestle it from corporate control. What we're doing with Democracy Coffee is trying to give people a scalable way to crowdfund where we can use collective action and our collective purchasing power to actually change the fundamental undercurrents, the thing that's feeding our political institutions is money. And if we, if we can give people easy ways to engage financially, the amount of money that's spent on elections, like it seems like it's an astronomical amount, but when you divide it amongst all of the people, it's not that much money. Like public financing in New York State, and they talk about this in the article, would only cost each taxpayer about a penny a day. Yeah, it's a lot of money, but when you break it up between a lot of people, it's not that unattainable. And and, and, the, and what that would do to restore confidence to the system. And truth to the system. Yeah, I mean, people don't believe politicians because politicians are corrupt. And it, we need, like, you know, until we pass public financing on, a, on a, a much broader scale, we need to come up with creative ways to crowdfund our elections. A lot of these crowdfunding campaigns, they have a beginning and an end, and then it sort of, you know, go on to the next thing. But what we're trying to do with Democracy Coffee is give people a way to, on a regular day-by-day day, day day basis, vote with their dollar. And and that's – we live in a plutocracy. We live in a government ruled by the wealthy. So the quicker we get hip to how we can crowdfund and pool collectively, the quicker we'll be able to take back the Democratic Party from corporate interests and, as an extension, save our democracy. Mm. Wouldn't that be a miracle? It, yeah, a small miracle, but it's happening. You know, I mean, like, is public financing happening anywhere else? Yeah, We're Maine working on it in New York State, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see it on the federal level, but we see the state level campaign as a way to raise awareness about the issue. A little bit more likely to be successful, you know, in, in a place like New York. But so building like a victory that can help us get closer to this on the federal level while doing good in the meantime. And so it's passed already in Maine. And where it's passed in Maine, you're seeing more women running, more you know, people like single mothers who just would not have the economic means to run for office can now get a clean elections fund debit card to run their campaign. So all these people, wow. fishermen, farmers, school teachers, like the regular, the 99% can actually now go door to door, get signatures with $5 qualifying contributions. And if they can prove that they have legitimate support in their community, they get a grant to run their campaign. And so that's the litmus test, is genuine evidence of support in your community Yeah. by actually interacting with the voters Yeah. and establishing agreements. Hmm. I believe this. I believe this, too. Hmm. I'm going to fight for this. That's important to me. Right. And those people that gave those $5 qualifying contributions, they're now – they have skin in the game, you know? With and so just five bucks. With just five bucks. And, then, and, and so without a huge commitment – you're now part of the process, and because you know in order to get the Clean Elections Fund to access it, you have to agree to forego all private financing. So what that does is allows people to have confidence that their representatives are actually going to represent them and not just the corporate boogeyman that, you know. So when when they're elected, if, the you know, the big oil man comes and says to the, the representative that got elected elected on the Clean Elections Fund – I want to build a pipeline through the school playground, an oil pipeline. That clean elections candidate can then say to them, actually, Mr. Oil Man, I got elected on a clean elections fund. You, I'll listen to you, but you can wait in line with everyone else who's here to see me today. I don't owe you any favors. I'm no longer dependent on you. And that's what we need to do. We need to cut the dependency on corporate power. So, yeah, democracy coffee is a way to, to consolidate power and money to support something that's going to be inherently – unpopular among the super rich the people who fund elections now don't want clean elections they like their power they like that access that they have and so we need to come up with creative ways to to give people who support public financing of campaigns a voice i'm thinking about the people a lot of people's awareness of the takeover of the party the source of the money like i think yes definitely a lot of people have this distrust of politicians of the government but it seems like for many people it's vague. Do they realize like how much money that is funding these campaigns, which they clearly see evidence of. They see commercials and signs everywhere where that money is coming from, who's who, where that propaganda is coming from. You get these mailers 
in the mail. Like, who paid for this mailer? Who wants this mailer made? Who wants this commission? What do they want in return? Yeah. I think yeah, I think people get it. On an intuitive level, most people will say, yeah, the money is controlling things. What I don't think most people do know about is that there's actual policy proposals that are passing, like, in Maine, that can make that different. And I think people have lost faith in the system because the system is pretty freaking corrupt. But if they know that there's things out there that are working, like the most common thing that I get, like if, if I'm like out with a clipboard working a crowd or going door to door, is I talk about what clean elections is. And the first thing people say is like, good luck with that. <laughs> it's like there's this reality. There's sarcasm about clean elections. Yeah, there's this reality-based cynicism that nothing good could come out of out of the government as it still stands and and while that's not unreasonable that that's not without merit um it is a self-fulfilling prophecy that the more we disengage the more we lose control of our system and so we don't really have an option if we're going to deal with these existential crises like climate change like it's not enough for us to just ride our bikes and like get a prius and like buy local food from our farmer's market like we need governments on a national scale to take control of this issue and unfortunately i don't see that happening as long as the politicians are beholden to the same corporations that are contributing to climate change so definitely so here we are you know trying to come up with ways to fund electric different ways to fund elections and how we can take a lot of people with a little bit of money each and and create a platform for candidates who are who are wanting to strengthen democracy, because they're they're not going to get funded by the big banks. They're not going to get funded by the real estate industry. Yeah, it seems like a little bit of a a caught circle. Mm-hmm. Like you need the people in the government to pass the laws to change the policy to create like equity and access and clean elections and true representation. But you need those ingredients in order to get the people in. Right. Somehow, you got to break that cycle. Right. And so that's where Democracy Coffee comes in. You know, that's where we're able to get the money to give to give people who want things like public financing of campaigns, like clean elections, a fighting chance. And the main the mainstream media has painted the bold, unapologetic, progressive, populist message as a losing strategy. There, they've. Um, push forward this idea of this left-right divide where the further you go to either side, the farther you're getting away from the the bulk of the population. And I think that's a, a, a false context. A better way to view it is you've got on one side the 99% and on one side the 1%. And the more you go to economic populism that supports the interests and, the, and the, improves the livelihood of the 99%, the more you're going to appeal to that 50% of the population that doesn't vote. And that's part of how Trump won. You know, Trump, through false populism, mm. was able to to motivate just a tiny fraction, 1% or 2% of the non-voting population. And that was a tsunami wave that, that you know, left the, the pundits scratching their heads. What happened? But that's because they believe they're drinking the Kool-Aid that there's this, this false dichotomy, dichotomy between right and left that – doesn't look at it as populism versus elitism. Yeah. I'm thinking about that. Like, how to really educate the people about what's real. You know, like, all these people who are actually voting against their own self-interest, but because of this false populism, they're, they're voting for people and policies that are just going to further shift the wealth and power away from the people and to the Blaming it on immigrants, blaming it on the other, whether it's, you know, right. it's black people, it's, it's you know. It, right, it, it's, like you're paying taxes to pay that person's welfare. That's why, that's right. where you're losing your money to, which is bullshit because you're losing way more money to fund the military industrial complex, yeah. funding war. That's yeah. a huge yeah. amount of our money. These huge tax taxes. breaks. I mean, Amazon, who's owned by the richest man in the world, didn't pay any taxes. And the the right has done such a good job of convincing, you know, uneducated, particularly rural people, 
that their problems aren't because of the one percent is is robbing us it's it's the other it's those people that don't look like you it's the age-old sort of divide and conquer tactic that so effective so i think what we need in the democratic party and 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 more specifically in the primaries is candidates that are a not trying to go milk toast to try to go after that tiny fraction of the you know high propensity voters that are in the quote-unquote middle but a candidate that can speak to the 50 percent of the population that is not voting the independents a, a candidate that will call the system corrupt that will that will say listen like your cynicism is not is not baseless and so i think we do if we want to see you know the full weight of the millennial generation coming to the ballot box in 2020 mm. that candidate needs to be real about how corrupt the system is and you know hillary clinton's you know trying to sweep under the rug corporate financing of, of the democratic party really turned off i think the millennials and the independents and these that's the population that's not voting and so i think whoever it is and i don't know whether that's beto o'rourke if that's elizabeth warren and i think you know there's still some time bernie sanders whoever that person may be is needs to be somebody that's not afraid to call the system corrupt and talk big big picture we need an overhaul i think i don't think anyone truly believes that we're gonna you know fix these big problems with with milk toast solutions i think that's just it's just not plausible i think we need somebody who can propose a a, a broad vision of an overhauled system and i think people like alexandria ocasio-cortez are doing that and i think a lot of the successes we saw in the in the 2018 midterms were from candidates that were that we're talking economic populism that we're talking bold new vision like beto i mean people look at that as a as a failure because they see that he didn't beat ted cruz but we're talking about texas we're talking about a really red state and a guy who just ran for president yeah and was second yeah yeah a really powerful player and we saw small donor funding beating ted cruz in in some quarters beto's strategy was was to be unapologetic and and not just try to be republican light and really create an alternative, a genuine alternative. And yeah, did that mean that some, you know, of this minute swing voter population were were pushed away from maybe, but there's so much more to gain by creating a real stark contrast. And I think his success was largely due to that. Same thing with Stacey Abrams. Mm. I think I think that's that's the, the winning strategy. And so when we're looking at the, you know, who's running for office in these primaries, the presidential and also congressional level we need to be looking for the candidates that are 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 talking you know bold a bold vision for 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 a major rehaul reboot but one of the things that's for me that is important is saying yeah i I completely support i mean i'm going to vote for potentially a moderate democrat if it means defeating uh, a nash a white nationalist party you know in an election i'm probably going to do it right but what I think over the next two years, the real process is trying to – we have to continue to pressure the Democrats that we just elected to actually become the party we want them to be. They're in power now, and they have an opportunity. That's why I'm hopeful about Delgado is that he has an opportunity to just vote against every piece of terrible legislation, call out Trump on corruption, talk about you know pay-for-play terrible politics in Washington where people are like – you know, whatever, the, the executive branch, there's so many people breaking so many laws in the executive branch right now. It's insane. I mean, just like spending money on bullshit and, you know, taking money from friends and, you know, whatever. It's complete corruption. The swamp is filling up with corpses. So now this is – we have to push the Democratic Party now after electing some moderates, some progressives. It wasn't, it wasn't just a sweep. We got to push them. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't waste any time at Delgado's victory party, right, you know, after he gave his speech. I went up to him like, are you going to support public financing of political campaigns? And he committed. He said yes. So we'll see. We got to hold his feet to the fire. And you know, when they when they go back on that stuff, we've got to be willing to to make it a political liability for them. And it's hard because does that help the Republicans more? Yeah, arguably it does. But I think we need to to, to control the heart of the Democratic Party, and it needs to be an economic populist message. We saw what happened with Hillary Clinton. Where the economic populist message got forgotten. In conclusion, Chris, do you have uh, do you have some hope? 
Like for Democrats, you're a newly registered Democrat. Do you have hope for the next two years and for maybe what's going to come out of this? Do you think that maybe this party is going to actually be speaking to you? I mean, I think that the Democratic Party is our largest hope strategically at this moment. I don't see any other parties coming along that are going to be even have any any ability to break up the Republican or conservative or whatever we want to call it agenda or power structure. Um, so for right now, I would say my hope is like, let's continue to make the Democratic Party better and hold them to what they supposedly stand for. But let's also keep the other um, more radical, more progressive battles alive at the same time, in addition to, you know, it doesn't, like I said before, it doesn't take that much time to lend a little bit of support to the Democratic Party here and there, and it doesn't take that much time to to have these conversations, kind of kind of forcing Democrats, you know, as individuals to step up and, and question some of these corporate Democratic factions. Um, yeah, and this is this could be talked about where there's more radical stuff happening potentially at the state level in New York, which would be like another podcast, right? So there's going to yeah. be like, who knows? I mean, it's like there's going to be maybe Medicare for all, right, at the state level. There's going to be a bunch of other fights not just pushing these congressmen to be that. Hallie, do you have hope? You got hope for like the next always. two years? Always. I always have hope. Always. I ah. always have hope. Look at you. Yeah. For Democrats too. Well, I have hope in my heart, I think, is my natural setting. And I also, you know, play by the numbers and the numbers are there. You know, if we can mobilize people who aren't voting but could vote to vote, we can mobilize people who are like, eh, voting, I'm not into it, to register. And if we could really take advantage of this in-between opportunity, you know, not just put all of our focus onto now who's going to run for president in two years, but instead think about, like, okay, we have made it out of the election phase. Now these are our representatives. How are we going to convince them to represent us? Yes. Great. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Matt. Thanks, John. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, what are we going to do? Another podcast coming soon. Oh, wait, thank you to Chris O'Babcock, of course, and Hallie Cannonet. Boom. Boom. Yeah. And uh, another podcast coming out in uh, two weeks. Yeah. Hope to, hear, hope to hear you soon. No, that's not a thing. Hope you hear us soon. We'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks for joining. Bye.